Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Anna Racer and Leela McNeil about their new book, Forces of Nature, The Women Who Changed Science. From the ancient worlds to the present, women have been critical to the progress of science, yet their importance is overlooked. Their stories lost, distorted, or actively suppressed. Forces of Nature sets the record straight and charts the fascinating history of women's discoveries in science. In the ancient and medieval world, women served as royal physicians and nurses, taught uh, mathematics, studied the stars, and practiced midwifery. As natural philosophers, physicists, anatomists, and botanists, they were central to the great intellectual flourishing of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. More recently, women have been crucially involved in the Manhattan Project, pioneering space missions, and much more. Despite their record of illustrious achievements, even today very few women will win Uh, Nobel Prizes in Science. In this thoroughly researched, authoritative work, you will discover how women uh, have navigated a male-dominated scientific culture, showing themselves to be pioneers and trailblazers, often without any recognition at all. Well, Anna, Leila, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. It's really great to have you here. All right. So as we witnessed the unprecedented times of the global uh, COVID pandemic, I was just wondering if we can start by you reflecting on how it affected you and your work and also maybe some takeaways that you gathered from uh, all of this experience. And we will start with Anna. Oh, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, it's difficult to put a, 
a book out <laughs> during a global <laughs> pandemic. Um, we were um, sort of fortunate in that um, most of the writing and editing and everything took place before all of this happened. Um, but the book was scheduled to come out um, in the fall of 2020. And, and so that um, definitely put a damper on things. And then it was difficult to, for me at least, it was really hard to imagine um, putting a book out into such a world. You know, we weren't going to be able to go on tour. We weren't going to be able to like go to bookstores uh, to do that. Um, it was just a really strange, um, it was a really strange experience, I think. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about it. <laughs> Yeah. And you yourself, how did you how did you adjust? Um, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'm sure that will catch up with me um, eventually. But yeah, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I had a, a lot of um, a lot of family stuff that was going on at the same time that was really difficult, and so um, I think it only feels like just now that I'm kind of being able to reflect on everything, it was just kind of really full on for the whole year. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well, I do appreciate your honesty in that uh, <laughs> because many, many people uh, would try to sort of sugarcoat it a little bit, you know, just to appear that they coped, but most of us didn't. Uh, I, I can say for myself as well, yeah. And uh, Leila, what about you? Um. Same, same that Anna said about having a book come out during this time with a lot of the limitations that were put on how we were able to interact with readers um, and not being able to do much in the way of like one-on-one in-person interaction with readers. Um, and that was difficult. And I mean, also on a, a personal level, it was difficult to have a book come out um, in, in the summer of 2021, after, during the pandemic, I lost people during the pandemic that I would have been so overjoyed to have shared this book with and this project. Um, family members who've seen me <clears throat> want to want to be a writer and saw me going through the writing process um, didn't get to enjoy the kind of end result. And that that was kind of um, a bittersweet, um, a bittersweet part for me. Oh, I'm very sorry about uh, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that this is, it's not, it's something that thousands, if not, you know, millions of people um, experienced as well. So, um, so yes, it's, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening out there that, that understands that. Okay, so last pandemic question. How was your sourdough? <laughs> I, have a, I have a tiny kitchen. I can't make bread in my kitchen. It's way too small. <laughs> so, uh, But I did have – my friends did make me some, and it was very good. And I did have a friend give me a sourdough starter, which I neglected and killed. Shh, don't tell anybody. I did not make any sourdough, but I did make many different kinds of breads that I hadn't made before. Um, And it was a good distraction. Some of them were like a five hour (laughs) process. (laughs) So, you know, that was a nice five hour distraction out of a day that was, 
you know, <laughs> bombarded by bad news. So I did do some bread, just not sourdough. No, fair enough. <laughs> All right. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? And we'll start with Anna. Sure. Um, I am a historian of science, technology, and medicine, more technology than anything. Um, I have a PhD from the University of Oklahoma. And I, with Layla, I am the co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science, which is an online magazine and podcast about women and gender in the history of science. And that collaboration with Layla is... Um, was the sort of beginning of our writing partnership and more or less the reason that the book came to be, I think. And so how um, did you get interested in the history of science and science journalism? Um, well, I actually, my background is in art and um, I, I guess I just usually tell people you, um, when I graduated from art school, grad school really was the <laughs> best career option for me. <laughs> um, so I, I had taken some like upper division history surveys. And so um, I, you know, I was young. I didn't really think about it very much. I applied to some graduate programs and um, Oklahoma gave me the best deal. So I went there and I really did fall very deeply <laughs> in love with that work. And um, when I'm not doing lady science or forces of nature type stuff, my my interest is um, the American space program in the 1960s. And uh, it just was incredible to me that um, to learn, I guess, when I was younger, that this is something you can do, something you can study, the history of science, the history of technology, and then all of the really fascinating kind of ways into things I was already interested in that come come from that kind of lens. Um, and I'm, you know, it obviously changed my life and that's where I met Layla. So it, it all worked out pretty good, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Layla? I am uh, also a historian of science, technology, and medicine. Unlike Anna, less technology more science and medicine. <laughs> um, so I guess our partnership kind of <laughs> equalizes out in that way. Um, and I, um, like Anna said, um, we met at University of Oklahoma where I was in the history of science uh, graduate program. And I, um, I worked on, um, for my big research project, a, um, a German women physician at the turn of the 20th century. And that's really how I started on my road, um, working on women and gender in the history of science. And um, I don't uh, work in academia anymore. Uh, I am a freelance writer and I helped um, launch the Women Who Shaped Science series at smithsonian.com. Um, and I now write for BBC Future on similar topics um, of women and gender in the history of science um, and also for various other outlets. Um, 
including uh, Lady Science Magazine. Um, and we also have the Lady Science podcast that um, I co-host with Anna and our managing editor, Rebecca Ortenberg. Um, and so, yeah, this is kind of kind of the work that I do 24-7. <laughs> yeah, I really like that she reconciled this art with science and you sort of bring the uh, specific perspective uh, to... Uh, to scientific uh, topics. But I also was wondering, uh, did you always have this passion for communication of uh, uh, different topics like art or science to others? Um, no. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess when I was um, an artist, I definitely, I did shows and things and I was invested in, in making sure that People saw my work and and being part of a, a community that way. And I think when Layla and I were in grad school, that was one of the things that I was really missing um, was that kind of feeling of um, being part of a larger community. Obviously, we had, you know, our cohort in grad school and in the academic community. But um, having come from somewhat outside of that, I felt that I really wanted that to be part of my life as well um, going forward. And also that um, the topics that uh, Layla and I were most interested in, um, particularly like women and gender, um, were just not like a huge part of our, our graduate curriculum. Um, and they're still kind of a marginal um, kind of niche in the larger academic community of the history of science. And um, I think we both thought that that was really unfortunate because, you know, some of the things you read in high school really changed the way or in high school, in grad school, though it really changed the way that we thought about not just our academic interests and, you know, how to do scholarship like this, but also just how we thought about the world. It definitely changed it for me. And um, there were at the time when we started Lady Science there you know, that was sort of the heyday of the academic blog. And there just wasn't really a lot out there that focused on the kinds of things that we were most interested in. Um, and so as we typically do, whenever we start a project, we just <laughs> went for it without planning too much um, because it was just something that we wanted to do and we saw a place for it. So I think the, the interest in like, doing this kind of like public facing work um, grew out of just needing a place for ourselves to do it. And there's no reason not to make it public. So that's kind of what we did. So all of all of this basically culminated in one of your projects, which which is the, the book, The Force uh, Forces of Nature. So what is it about? And how did you come to writing it? Go for it, Leila. <laughs> the book is about um, it, it really offers an alternative to the very popular compendiums of like biographies, like individual biographies of women in science um, that uh, are very popular and um, very important to kind of a public consciousness around the history of women uh, in science. Um, but ours doesn't so much focus on individuals 
uh, and their individual biographies. We are much more invested in placing women in their historical and cultural context with other women who were um, participating in science, technology, and medicine around the same time um, to really show how those cultural moments shaped women's lives and careers and how in turn women shaped those cultural and historical moments as well. Um, Just to give us a little bit of a deeper, richer, more textured understanding into the history of science and um, how gender and women have shaped that conception of, of history and science. And we came to writing this book um, really out, of, like Anna said earlier, um, grew out of lady science um, in, in that the things we were interested in and in when we created lady science are the same things we bring into the book itself. Um, but on a more like technical level, how this book came to be, um, the publisher found us through Lady Science as well and reached out to us and thought or wondered if we would be interested in in writing a book for them. And it did actually start out what they wanted was was a book of individual biographies. And um, Anna and I kind of we discussed amongst ourselves and we're like, eh, that's not really what we're into. Um, it's great you know, that they want us to write a book and this would be our first book and that would be great to have a book. <laughs> but mm. um, we really wanted to kind of push push it a little bit more towards what me and Anna do and what we think is um, important to put out there into the world. And so we settled with the publisher on what the book has become, um, which is more of a, um, a more holistic look at women in the history of science rather than individual biographies. Yes, for sure. And it's uh, such an interesting way to put it, uh, uh, and as you say, to put actually women in the context uh, within the history. So what roles did women play in the history of science? Um, basically anything you can imagine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we co- um, the book covers basic, it's, um, it has a kind of like, textbook kind of layout so that it covers, you know, antiquity to the present. Um, so there are women in basically any discipline that you can imagine. Um, and one of the things that um, we really tried to do is is to draw out some of these stories that are um, not as well known and to kind of think about why they're not as well known. So, you know, um, Marie Curie isn't in the book at all, except at the very end. Um, because I think everybody is, you know, at least passingly familiar with her story. Um, and also she is one of those people who the reason we are familiar with her story is that she has all the kind of like traditional, um, accolades, um, that we associate with science, you know, her two Nobel prizes and her publications. Um, and not that Marie Curie didn't deserve all of those things or actually work very hard to get them because she was a woman in a male-dominated field. It's just that there, the, the nature of science is not one solely of like individual geniuses making, you know, these earth-shattering discoveries. Um, science is done by people in collaboration in communities. And so we wanted to also look at people who just kind of 
just did science, just sort of plugged away at this work and were very diligent in their sort of pursuit of knowledge about nature, but maybe didn't get Nobel Prizes, maybe, you know, because they were unknown or because they weren't allowed to publish or whatever. So, and then also, like, as you go back into the earlier period, we're looking at um, activities that are not always classified as science. We talk a lot about um, midwifery and nursing as professions that have been historically um, feminized professions, mostly women doing this work, and are not often classified as scientific or medical uh, work in like a professional sense, in part because it's mostly women doing it. Um, so in terms of like roles that are played, um, yes, you have your Marie Curies and you have your Florence Nightingales and your Rosalind Franklins, but you also have people who are working as anthropologists and archaeologists uh, in relative obscurity who are doing that work because they want to study their own heritage and to better understand it and to see it in um, through their own eyes instead of the eyes of like white colonizers. Um, we talk about um, myths and um, and magic and mysticism and all these ways that women are creating and codifying knowledge of nature in ways that people are not considering science at all. Um, so yeah, any, any role you can think of really from, you know, principal investigator to, um, human computer to lab assistant to field technician to midwife to whatever. So as you mentioned, your book, uh is uh, written in chronological order so uh, from the antiquity then uh, um, middle ages and all the way to the modern day so we're just wondering if you can tell us of, uh, about a couple of uh, women from all of these different uh, time periods that stand out most for you um i think i'll start i guess at the beginning <laughs> mm -hmm. in uh so when the book starts with um, the antiquity period and middle ages. And one thing I want to note about um, studying antiquity is that we have very few records of an individual life from this time period for both women and men. Um, and it is definitely more difficult um, to find sources on women during this time period. And so one of the ways that we look, I mean, everyone knows kind of about Hypatia of Alexandria um, and largely through kind of the sensational death that she underwent. Um, but um, what we do instead of just focusing on Hypatia, which a lot of people know and can Google her story to understand who she was, is we look at where the gaps are in our understanding of women in antiquity. And where there are gaps, um, we try to make educated guesses based on what we, the sources that we do have of if a woman was participating in science during this time, what would that look like? Um, we have kind of an idea of what science and mathematics looked like during this time. So if a woman was part of that, how would that go? What would that look like? Um, and 
one thing that we're very clear about in the book is being clear about what we don't know. Um, and when we are making those educated guesses, um, and then when we move into um, the Middle Ages, we when we have more um, printed uh, or I'm sorry, um, written materials, um, we do come across some figures. One of the ones that we write about in the book is um, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, and she was an abbess, uh, but she was also a polymath. Um, she composed her own music. She wrote um, uh, natural history. Uh, she did so many different things. And what we focus on in the book is um, her cosmology and how she received her cosmological visions of the universe through um, mysticism, through divine union with God. And as a woman in the church, um, it was through these visions, through being able to claim mysticism, that she was able to have any sort of recognition um, in cosmology. Um, the only way that she could really be listened to was to claim this as um, union with God, that these weren't visions of her own mind, that they were visions coming from God. And um, we don't usually put Hildegard in uh, the category of cosmologist, but she was very much participating in the discussion of medieval understandings of the universe um, through through religion. Um, and we thought that that was a really important angle to, to kind of tease out of her story. Um, and then when we move into the Renaissance, um, we have women like Maria Kunitz, who was an astronomer and mathematician. And she published a book on her own dime, um, which was a uh, book of astronomical tables. Um, and she was very much well-versed in what was going on in astronomy at that time. Um, she was um, an advocate for Kepler and his three laws of planetary motion, which were somewhat new at the time. Um, she published her book in uh, German and Latin, which was a really innovative approach um, because German was not yet a scientific language. Um, so it made um, this work more accessible to people outside of um, the academic elite, um, which were reading Latin. And that book helped establish German as a scientific language um, going forward. And um, her story is, is really extraordinary. And we usually don't think about her um, in the context of, um, you know, the history of astronomy or the history of mathematics. Mm. Um, because, you know, you did have your Keplers of the time. And usually those are the people who kind of, you know, um, suck up all the air in the room. Um, <laughs> but then, um, you know, going forward from there, we have women in um, the 19th century um, who at the time, there were so many technological advancements in printing going on. We have the introdu introduction of the steam press. We have um, increased rates of literacy. Um, and so those two things kind of combined to have a boom in 
in publishing and for the public and scientific publishing for the public. So science popularizations and women um, really cornered the market on popular science writing during the 19th century, um, especially um, in the areas of botany, marine biology, um, um, fossils, um, all sorts of, all sorts of things women were, were writing about and they really shaped the public culture of science in the 19th century. And we don't really think about that as performing science, but when you're reaching that many people, uh, you're reaching, you're shaping the scientific understanding of an entire country. I find that a pretty significant contribution to the history of science. Um, and then of course, in the 20th century, you've got, um, more women entering higher education. So, um, you know, we have, uh, more women entering all different kinds of fields from psychology to, um, chemistry to physics, um, medicine. Um, and, you know, when we get into the 1960s with the civil rights movement, we have more, Black women and queer women entering uh, scientific fields um, and shaping uh, our understanding of those fields through the, their lived perspectives as Black women, as queer women. Um, and um, some notables from there, one would be Mamie Phipps Clark. She was a Black psychologist from Columbia. And um, she was really fighting against the uh, scientific racism in the field at the time. And um, one of her uh, psychology projects where she was looking at how race and racial identity um, impacts Black children and at what age that happens. And um, it's popularly known as the doll test. Um, and what they found was pretty alarming was that um, children in segregated schools um, start to um, internalize negative perceptions about black children and black people at a much earlier age. Um, mm. And that, that uh, study was used as evidence for desegregating schools in um, Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and that was the very first time that a, um, a, a social science had been used as evidence in a Supreme Court case. Um, and so really what's important in this story is that it took, it took a Black woman to shape the knowledge that we have about psychology and race. Um, that before that, you know, a white woman could not bring that lived experience to the work. Um, and so really what we're trying to show with these stories is that the more diverse experiences that you have in science, that that actually shapes the way science is produced. Um, and that shapes the knowledge that we have. And one of the reasons it's important to, you know, kind of break up this homogenized white guys club of science that has reigned for so long. Um, and then we kind of end in um, the kind of in the present day um, with um, women like Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who is still living. Um, she discovered pulsars um, and she was overlooked for a Nobel Prize. Um, uh, 
and it went to, I believe, Anna, right? Her male professor. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But really what we're trying to show when we come into the present is that, you know, you have read this entire book from antiquity to now. Um, we have shown you that it's not a question of if women have participated in science. Um, we have shown you that they have. And so what we need to move towards now is breaking down those systems and structures that have kept women from view and keep women from succeeding and excelling into higher positions. Um, We really want to turn the gaze from getting women into science, showing you these role models to get you there, and looking at the overall systemic oppressions that make women leave. Um, and that's kind of where we end looking at things like, um, you know, investigating how sexual harassment, uh, and sexual violence and things like that shape the experience of women in STEM, which keeps them from pursuing careers and, um, um, advancing into leadership positions within the field. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, (laughs) that was a really long answer. I apologize. (laughs) No, no, it's uh, really great, really detailed. So uh, the point uh, that I really appreciate that actually both of you made that uh, many women, they just didn't have this kind of spotlight on them, like, for example, Marie Curie did, like uh, Anna Anna told us. Um, and many of them, they just did their work without actually asking for a, a, like acknowledgement as such. So the way you would raise your children, you just, just do it because you have to and you love your children and you don't ask for uh, like fanfares and uh, uh, Nobel Prizes for it. Right. And I think there, there was um, a bit of a lack of acknowledgement as such uh, for the image of the women in science in those days. Well, I think that there were a lot of women who were asking to be heard and were kind of clawing at the edges of the kind of the scientific establishment. Um, people in, you know, some women like in the 19th century um, did put up a pretty big fight to be able to present their work to the Royal Society, for example. Um, someone like, um, if for a later example, someone like Vera Rubin, who um, was a cosmologist and astronomer, she uh, she wrote a, a incredible paper providing evidence for dark matter, and uh, her advisor told um her well obviously you can't go to the conference and present it because you have a baby and she said excuse me <laughs> he was like i'll oh, present dear. it for you um but i have to put my name on it if i'm going to do that and so she said absolutely not uh <laughs> and went to the mm-hmm. conference anyway and presented it herself um i think that also one of the things that um we try to be really careful of in thinking about women in the past um, is to try not to use our understanding of these kinds of structural oppressions and marginalizations to strip women of their agency. Because uh, I think that a lot of women uh, who were doing this work knew the score. They knew that they could spend all their time uh, lobbying to get into a scientific society and not get it, or they could spend their time working and do their work. So I think in terms of like asking for recognition, I think it's important to remember also that like um, these women knew what they were doing. 
they understood the culture that they were a part of. Um, and I think there was a lot of just picking your battles going on, you know? Um, and it's important to us to, to try to make space for that agency wherever we can to think about, um, how women understood the social worlds that they were part of and how they navigated them and often how they bent those rules or, or use them to their own advantage. Layla mentioned about this sort of publishing boom in the 19th century that a lot of women became part of. They saw an opening. Um, publishing houses didn't have enough male authors to cover the demand for natural history writing. And so women stepped into that gap and made you know, successful careers for themselves in ways that they knew they could, you know, that they could write from home while still caring for their home and their families. They could anonymize themselves and pretend to be men. Like they understood what they were doing and the systems that they were part of, and they still managed to like make their own way. And so I think that's something that we really want to remember when we look back into the past and talk about structural issues is that they are not like they are embedded systems, not sort of these like overpowering like laws of nature. And they're embedded in the same social world that these women are, and they understood them. That's excellent clarification. It's really, yeah, it really clarifies everything. So I was just wondering, what were the differences between different places in a world? So are uh, the women in the Western world uh, versus Eastern world, for example? Um, <clears throat> so one of the, I do want to acknowledge that that is one of the limitations of the book um, that Anna and I, um, I, I've worked largely in the 19th and early 20th century and Anna works largely in the mid uh, 20th century. So um, of the U.S. and and Europe, and so we are kind of um, we we don't have infinite time <laughs> to write a book, and we are somewhat bound by um, our own expertise. Um, and so we did try to cover as much as we could globally, um, also with the languages that we know. Um, you know, we are kind of bound by by that as well um, on how far geographically we can go. Um, so I do, I do want to just put that out there, um, that that is one of the limitations of, of the book. Um, but what we do cover globally, um, we cover Egypt and China. Um, and, um, one of the things we find pretty much in every geographical area that we looked is that women, um, have always participated in medicine in some, to some degree, um, that, they've been performing as Anna mentioned earlier as, as midwives. Um, and also just the expectation, um, that women care for women and children, um, that that also seems to be a somewhat global, um, global issue and global phenomenon, mm -hmm. which has made medicine historically a, an area kind of rife with women. Um, so even though we find in many places, women were barred from getting medical degrees, that women were still 
um, caring for their families and their communities um, uh, with um, their own types of uh, medicinal cures um, through delivering babies, um, taking care of pregnant women, and all of that um, has typically fallen to women. And that is something we do find um, pretty, pretty globally. So then as we move towards present day, what are women's roles in modern day science? So not to like be hostile to the question. Um, I think as with the past, um, women have always done science and women are doing science now. And I think one of the things that I would really like to see is how we can reframe this discussion, not in terms of like identifying and highlighting women's sort of novelty in science. It's important to understand the ways that women struggle to become scientists and to um, to excel at the same level as men. But um, this is just never a question that we ask about men. What are men's roles in science? <laughs> They're scientists, you know? And I think thinking... Again, what Layla said about um, instead of thinking about individuals in that way or even um, roles and kind of categorizations, for me, it's more productive to think about the larger structures um, of scientific culture, particularly Western science, um, and to think about what the role of women is in that culture in kind of a meta way. So not asking about like the reality on the ground of, of what, you know, what a woman does at work every day, but asking how does science itself as a culture and a community see women and um, what can we do to change those perceptions if they are negative and if they are negatively impacting women's ability to, to practice science. Um, and it is kind of, uh, it's kind of like a wibbly conversation to have, and and a difficult thing to parse because it is, it is about thinking through, you know, the culture of science itself and how it frames the people within it, and who is responsible for making the decisions about those kinds of framing. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know that we have like a good answer for it now. We have not, I, Layla and I didn't solve the problem. Like, sorry. <laughs> but, oh, dear. <laughs> uh, but I think um, one way to, to do that is to look at, to look at the past and to use our, our lens as historians, as analysts, to think about it that way, to think about cultures and social worlds as opposed to it's just simply for me, it is too easy for that to become a slippery slope where then the blame always ends up on women for not being in the pipeline instead of investigating what the pipeline itself looks like and if it's full of tumbleweeds and spiders and stuff or whatever you know that's a weird metaphor i apologize 
<laughs> Very scientific. <laughs> so I really appreciate uh, the point that you made. Uh, so it's more more systematic uh, obstacles uh, for women's place uh, uh, more visible in science, really. And as you say, we shouldn't really have to ask this question. So in ideal world, we don't even we wouldn't even have this uh, kind of discussion uh, about women's place in the sciences because it would, it would just be like a normal thing for right. women to be there. So what are any, if any, success uh, stories uh, on how as community we really start to improve on how women are represented in sciences? I think, I mean, just looking at the progress since women were allowed to join higher education in the end of the 19th century to today, I mean, there is there has been undeniable progress. Um, there, you know, it started out with um, white women being able to enter into higher education and um, black women um, fighting to also be there. And so, you know, we, we have seen higher numbers across demographics of women entering into higher education in the sciences. Um, so there definitely has been some progress there. Um, there has definitely not been enough progress in um, the acceptance of women of color as scientists. Um, I think one of the things that Anna and I joke about is that we're all still um suffering from a 19th century hangover um <laughs> about oh, what, hangover. <laughs> yeah <laughs> about um women's place about the place of women of color um all of these kind of 19th century stereotypes about how we scientifically classified women um and women of color and you know, during that time period is when we got really got the emergence of what a scientist looks like, like physically looks like, like a, a, a white dude um, in a lab. And um, so we still bring all of those stereotypes and all of those understandings of what a woman is and what a man is um, into our understandings of what a scientist can be and who a scientist can be. And um, that is still very limiting um, for any woman who wants to pursue a science as a career. Um, and one of the things that we have not done a good job of doing is looking at science as an institution that was built by white men. And because we have not had that reckoning we're still trying to find ways to put women, white women and women of color into a system that was never built for them. Um, and that's one of the things that we really want our historical work to do is to show that if the system was built by white men, we can build something different and we can build something better that is much more inclusive of human difference. Um, and I don't know if that's more of a digression, but I think it's more of a stalemate that until we can kind of tear down those structures, we're going to continue to have this problem 
of um, women leaving scientific fields before they can excel into leadership positions. Um, yeah, I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, we do indeed need more systematic interventions to change the system itself, as you say, as you say, to have more equitable representation of women in scientific establishment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And because when, you know, we we peel back the layers still of, you know, we can have the role models of um, a woman in a field, but that's really the first layer when you start peeling it back and you see still who's like controlling funding, who's controlling access to research that women need, Um who's running universities, who's running labs, things like that, you still, you keep going back and back and back and you find that it's still largely white men controlling those larger systems. Um, and when you have, you know, as we've seen in the last several years, like all, when we keep pulling back those layers, we keep seeing um, the men who are controlling these are serial harassers. Um, and, you know, serial abusers of, of grad students. And those, those types of things matter. Um, it's not just about having the woman role model. It's about um, going back and back and back through the system to see where the failures are. And sometimes those failures go all the way to the top. Yeah, for sure. So I was just wondering what discoveries along your journey to writing Forces of Nature surprised you the most? Uh, <laughs> well, I think the thing that there are two things that were shocking to me. One is that um, um, some of the women that so we began the process by just kind of making a list of women in science and then thinking about ways that we could group them kind of thematically either by, you know, their discipline or time period or certain experiences they had in common to talk about these kind of um, larger historical contexts. So as we were going through our list, we were using a lot of resources um, from outside to make this list to, to start with. And we did find that, um, at least a couple of people on our list um, were not real people and never existed, and also and not not just were like mythical figures in history, but were like made up by the internet. Hmm. Um, one of those is Merit Ta, who was supposedly the first woman uh, physician in ancient Egypt. Um, it is uh, pretty clear that she never existed. Um, so we had to kind of go back then and figure out, all right, what is the deal with women doctors in ancient Egypt then? Because it's clear to me now that this person, uh, is not a real person and there is no like archeological evidence for her. So going back through and digging through that. And like Layla said, with the kind of limitations that we have in terms of our own expertise and like, obviously I don't read hieroglyphics, um, so the best we were able to do in good faith was to make some inferences about what it might be like to be a woman doctor in this period using the the sources that we could find. Um, and then I think the, the thing that 
I'm not I'm not actually that shocked that the internet invented <laughs> a woman first because of the way that we consume media about women in science as like clickbait listicles that go around every time there's a, a birthday or an anniversary or a Google Doodle or whatever, you know, everybody has to write a piece about it to get on the hashtag bandwagon. Um, and that stuff just gets churned out and repeated and sourcing gets lost and misattributed. And so that didn't surprise me. I think what surprised me the most is um, the really sort of deeply personal and often traumatic um, realities of the stories that we talk about. Um, You know, everybody always wants to ask us about like all these successes and stuff. Um, But one of the things that I think we found was just how often um, women were just slapped down by the world. And whether we're talking about like Jewish scientists um, fleeing Europe to escape Nazi persecution and death, um, and then coming up against the sort of hard wall of um, American immigration policy in the 20th century, and how difficult it was for some of these women scientists to um, to escape with their lives and then try to have another life somewhere else. Um because the universities that they were trying to get jobs at, which you had to have a job in order to immigrate, uh, weren't taking women women scholars. So things like that. Um, there are some stories in the book that we don't go into super detail about, but like just interpersonal stories of like um, like intimate partner violence and abuse that people suffered. And I think when we when we think about and and consume media about women in science, oftentimes we're looking for happy endings and we're looking for heroic stories, but it's just as important to look at this sort of dark underside of this because this is the reality for these women. They lived through this. Um, some of them didn't survive it. So, um, it was shocking to me in that sense, just because I think we're so oversaturated with positive narratives. Um, and it made me really rethink the way that I approach this history um, in my own in my own scholarship, in my own thinking. And I hope that it does that for readers as well. Yes, for sure. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I, was, I would like to ask, what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Um, I am currently working on um, a proposal for another book. Um, unfortunately, I'm not writing this one with Anna. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm still sending her all the things I'm writing and telling her to comment on them and help me. But um, <laughs> um, the book I'm writing is um, a reframing of the modern history of astronomy and cosmology through the work of Henrietta Swan Leavitt. Um, she was a Harvard woman computer who de- um, devised a a very key relationship between light and um, and distance, um, and that has become the measuring stick by which we have measured the galaxies and the universe for the last century. And 
um, I will be kind of following this distance measuring stick um, through the 20th century to today. That sounds super exciting. I hope you come uh, and talk to us about uh, your book once it's done. <laughs> yeah, I have I have to write it first. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and Anna? Yeah, uh, it looks like my next big project will be a um, a conference or symposium type of thing and um, an edited volume that um, Asif Siddiqui, who is a historian of spaceflight, is putting together. And it's about um, um, disruption and displacement and uh, colonialism um, related to uh, the space programs of the 20th century. And my focus is on Kennedy Space Center in Florida and the kind of uh, environmental history of that place and how it is entwined with our narratives about spaceflight and what spaceflight means for Americanism and for like um, thinking about uh, frontiers and colonizing space and things like that. So that's the, I think that's the next big thing for me that I'm working on. That sounds really interesting. (laughs) So uh, where can our listeners find more information about your work and your book? So if you go to uh, forcesofnaturebook.com, you can find all the information about the book, including links to uh, order it and you can see some reviews and other places where we've talked uh, about the book if you're interested in hearing more. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter at, at Anna and Reeser. Um, and my website is AnnaReeser.com. You can find me, Layla, on Twitter at, at Layla Sedai. It's uh, at L E I L A S E D A I. And um, my website is laylamcneil.com. And if you are interested in learning about um, the uh, magazine and podcast that Anna and I um, have founded and run together, um, you can go to ladyscience.com. Excellent. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today. It's been a truly thought-provoking discussion. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for having us on.